Gemini is dead. No, I am not! I'm alive! I go on! I breathe! Look at me! Look at me! And tell me what you see! Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. And it's time for us to talk about another film in the Exorcist franchise. We've covered Exorcist 1. And 2. And now it's time for... L'Exorcist 3. <laughs> yeah, whew. I mean, we spent all that time talking about Exorcist 2. It's time to talk about this one and get that nasty taste out of our mouth. Right? Yeah, and I don't know, replace it with Brussels sprouts? Yeah, something... <laughs> mild and kind of flavorless. I don't know, but still better. (laughs) (laughs) Well, The Exorcist 3 is a 1990 American psychological horror film written and directed by William Peter Blatty, based on his novel, Legion, from 1983, and is the third film, as we just said, in The Exorcist franchise. The film is set 17 years after the events of the original and ignores the events of Exorcist 2, although I don't think it had to. It follows a character from the first film, Lieutenant William Kinderman, who investigates a series of murders in Georgetown that have the hallmarks of the Gemini Killer, a long-deceased serial killer loosely based on the Zodiac Killer, amongst others. The film stars George C. Scott, Brad Dourif, Ed Flanders, Jason Miller, and Nicole Williamson. Ed Flanders, I can't with his name. (laughs) My hi-de-ho, Ed Flanders. Life is one crushing defeat until you just wish Ed Flanders was dead. Blatty, who wrote both the original novel and the screenplay to the 1973 adaptation of The Exorcist, conceived the story as a sequel with William Friedkin attached to direct. When Friedkin left the project, Blatty turned the concept into a best-selling novel titled Legion, as we said. Morgan Creek bought the rights to the story and brought on Blatty to direct his screenplay. But the production company demanded many last-minute changes. The film was a moderate success following the commercial and critical failure of The Exorcist 2. Well, of course, this is really like 15 years later after that. But I don't know how you know real that is or validated that can be. I mean, that's a long period of time. And I feel like people would have been hungrier for a new Exorcist movie more than they were in 1977. So, yeah. So yeah, probably. Okay, listeners. I have dreams of a rose and then falling down a long flight of steps. This is The Exorcist 3. Seventeen years ago, an extraordinary motion picture touched our most profound, nameless fears. Do you dare walk these steps again? Satan grows stronger. You believe in possession, Father? He has found a haven. Come to take a little blood from your father. He has taken possession. The boy had been crucified. His web widens. I've just never seen anything like this in 20 years. Inside this cell, the killer drove an ingot into each of his eyes and cut off his head. Inside a man. Who are you? I am no one. A man we thought had died 17 years ago. He is inside with us! He will never get away! 
terror is back. George C. Scott in William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist Three. In 1990, 17 years after Reagan McNeil's exorcism in 1973, Father Dyer, played by Ed Flanders, and Lieutenant William F. Kinderman, played by George C. Scott, reminisce about Father Damien Karras. The following night, an incident at a church occurs, indicating the presence of an evil supernatural entity, which causes a crucifix to briefly come to life. The next morning, Kinderman is called to find the body of Thomas Kintry, a black youth. There have been multiple similar killings, but the fingerprints of the crime scenes do not match, indicating a different person was responsible for each murder. Kinderman reveals to the hospital staff that the murders fit the modus operandi of James Venomum, played by Brad Dorif, or the Gemini Killer, a serial killer who was executed 15 years prior. Kinderman visits the head of a psychiatric ward, Dr. Temple, who relates the history of one of his patients. The patient was found wandering aimlessly 15 years previously with amnesia. He was locked up, canatonic until he became violent and claimed to be the Gemini killer. Kinderman is shocked to see that the patient is actually his old friend Damien Karras, played by Jason Miller, who was thought to have died at the bottom of the steps of doom. 17 years earlier. When speaking to him, Karras's form appears to change back and forth into that of the Gemini killer. He expresses ignorance of Karras, but boasts killing Father Dyer. Friar? <laughs> Friar Dyer. <laughs> yeah. Friar Dyer. It's been three movies and we've missed that. Okay. How now, brown cow? <clears throat> That night, a nurse is murdered and Dr. Temple commits suicide. Kinderman returns to see Karis, who once again changes into the Gemini killer. The Gemini explains that he is being aided by a master, the same entity who had previously possessed Reagan McNeil. The master was furious at being exorcised by Karis and is exacting its revenge by using Karis's body as a conduit for the Gemini to continue his killing spree. Each evening, the soul of the Gemini leaves the body of Karis and possesses another patient elsewhere in the hospital, using their geriatric and sometimes catatonic bodies to commit the murders. The Gemini also reveals that he had forced Dr. Temple to bring Kinderman to him through fear and manipulation. The Gemini possesses an old woman and attempts to murder Kinderman and his family at their home, but the attack abruptly ends when Father Paul Morning, played by Nicole Williamson, inexplicably arrives at the hospital and begins to perform an exorcism on Karis. The master intervenes, taking over Karis's body, and Father Morning is severely mutilated for his trouble. What was his name? Father Morning? <laughs> morning? Morning. Well, morning's passing. <laughs> Oh my god, that's super on the nose. Stupid bloody. <laughs> Kinderman rushes back to the hospital where the possessed Karis torments and attempts to kill Kinderman. Father Morning manages to regain consciousness and tells Karis to fight his own possession. Father, heal thyself. <laughs> Karis regains his free will briefly and begs Kinderman to take the opportunity to shoot him. Kinderman does, killing Karis and freeing him from both the Gemini and his master. Later... Kinderman attends a funeral where Karis is finally laid to rest. Again. (laughs) (laughs) 
the end? Yes. <laughs> Convoluted, said the New York Times. Long and literary, said the Washington Post. <laughs> From here, it's only the beginning. <laughs> The Exorcist 3 was first released to European markets in October of 1989 and finally opened in North America on August 17, 1990. The film was released just one month ahead of the parody film Repossessed, starring Leslie Nielsen and Linda Blair. Blair claimed that Exorcist 3 was rush-released ahead of Repossessed, killing its publicity. That movie was never going to be successful, but it's very, very funny. <laughs> I love it. I mean, I think I already told you, but there's they pretty much just do The Exorcist, right? And so Leslie Nielsen is trying to exercise Linda Blair, and she does the whole lick me thing. <laughs> and the camera pans over, and she's wearing this, like, plush ice cream cone costume. <laughs> so stupid. I need to see that. It's funny. Maybe that should be our Patreon. <laughs> oh, my God, I wish. Uh, the Exorcist 3 earned a little more than $9 million at the box office opening weekend, securing the number one spot. Other films in the top ten that weekend include Ghost, yep. Flatliners, Presumed Innocent, and Young Guns 2. The film would eventually go on to make $44 million worldwide against a reported budget of $11 million. Blatty believes the poor box office can be attributed to the film's title, as he always wanted it to share the same name as his novel, Legion. During production, the film went under various titles, including The Exorcist 1990, stupid. and Blatty once shared... What? Stupid. It's a stupid title. <laughs> <laughs> Blatty once shared, I begged them when they were considering titles not to name it Exorcist Anything because Exorcist 2 was a disaster beyond imagination. You can't call it Exorcist 3 because people will shun the box office. But they went and named it Exorcist 3. Then they called me after the third week when we were beginning to fade at the box office and they said, we'll tell you the reason. It's going to hurt. You're not going to like this. The reason is Exorcist 2. I couldn't believe it. They had total amnesia about my warnings. Bullshit. Whatever. I think Linda Blair is actually a little bit more right on about this yeah it had been 15 years since exorcist 2 no one really fucking cared i mean really they really didn't no. i mean like they could have released it anytime he did the same thing borman did you know we'll get we'll get into that a little bit yeah. the exorcist 3 holds a 59 percent on rotten tomatoes with an audience score of 56 percent. so really close the site's consensus reads the exorcist 3 is a talky literary sequel with some scary moments that rival anything from the original <laughs> um i mean maybe i i like that yeah Audiences polled by CinemaScore gave the movie an average grade of C. Mm-hmm. British film critic Mark Kermode called it a restrained, haunting chiller, which simulates adrenaline and intellect alike. Vincent Canby of the New York Times said The Exorcist 3 is better and funnier, intentionally, moving than either of its predecessors. People critic Ralph Novak wrote, As a movie writer-director, William Peter Blatty is like David Lynch's good twin. He's eccentric, original, funny, and daring, but he also has a sense of taste, pace, and restraint. Which is by way of saying this is one of the shrewdest, wittiest, most intense and satisfying horror movies ever made. Wow. I like this movie, but I think that may be a little far. Jesus He's saying that David Lynch doesn't have taste. I guess his good twin. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> Oof. Owen Gleiberman over at EW claimed, if part two sequels are generally disappointing, part threes are often much, much worse. It can seem as if nothing is going on in them except dim murmurings about the original movie. Murmurings that mostly remind you of what isn't being delivered. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> he additionally labeled The Exorcist 3 as an ash gray disaster that has the feel of a nightmare catechism lesson or a horror movie made by a depressed monk. 
<laughs> it is very Catholic. It is super Catholic. Yeah. <laughs> there are some accolades and legacy for this. Uh, Saturn Awards, it was nominated for Best Horror Film with Best Supporting Actor for Brad Dourif. Well-deserved. And it won Best Writing. And at the Golden Raspberries, it was nominated for Worst Actor, George C. Scott. I don't think that's deserved. I do not either. Yeah, when I, I saw George that, I was great. shocked. I yeah. clutched my pearls when I read that. Talks of a director's cut have been circulating in recent years that would feature some deleted scenes of Vladdy's original, but none of those talks have come to fruition. A fan edit of the film, however, minus the exorcism scenes called Legion, hit in the internet in 2011. This film did not include any deleted material, however. This would be the last installment of the franchise until 2004, when the first of two very similar prequels were released within a year of each other. Mm. The Exorcist 3 became a focal point during the trial of serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer. Detectives testified that Dahmer claimed to identify with the Gemini killer and would play the film for some of his victims before killing them. Dahmer's final attempted victim, Tracy Edwards, testified that Dahmer would rock back and forth while chanting at various times, and that he especially enjoyed a sequence with a possessed Karis. Dahmer went so far as to purchase yellow contact lenses to more resemble Miller, and as well to emulate another film character he admired, Emperor Palpatine from Return of the Jedi. Wow. <laughs> Just... Well, it's a fucking psycho. What can we say? Jeffrey Dahmer is a weird man. <laughs> oh, he gives gay people a bad name. Did. He's dead. I'm sorry. Well, you want to get into the movie? Yeah. Let's start with that cast, right? Just to, just really quickly, George C. Scott obviously did an excellent job as Lieutenant Kennerman, recast from the first film because, of, unfortunately, that actor had died. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like George C. Scott. I like it when – I mean, he's – He's a good actor. Yeah. He's interesting. I mean, he. I feel like he plays the same part every single time, but maybe it's just his acting style. Yeah, the character actor, I guess. You know, but we also got Ned. I mean, sorry, Ed Flanders <laughs> as Friar. I mean, Father Dyer. Highly <laughs> hope. Friar Dyer. He was really good in this too. He was funny. Like he's real quick. The dialogue is fast anyway at the the beginning of this movie. Yeah, and he delivers lines. Yet well. again, I wish it had been that original actor who's still alive to this day. He's like ninety. I don't know. I mean, I thought that Ed Flanders was really good in this movie. Yeah, they did fine. He and was charming, were, especially as like a as like an odd couple. Yes, I mean, like yeah. I really bought their friendship too. Yeah, I mean, uh, it just worked for me. I just wanted like a scene with them in the theater as those like old man Muppets or whatever. Oh my god! <laughs> yes, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> huh? And then, uh, you know, this film is very white man geriatric, I, I have to say, because we uh, continue with these people. Jason Miller, as, of course, coming back as da- uh, Damien Karras, with uh, his other half, played by Brad Dorf, who is not, you know, geriatric at this point, playing uh, James Veneman or the Gemini Killer, right? Uh, as well as, I think, they both kind of played the, the master, quote yeah. unquote, Pikachu, whatever his name is. Kazuzu? <laughs> Kazuzu? <laughs> 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 we need to get fucking kazoo now i know shit <laughs> and then my one of my favorites i really love the way he he speaks in his in his roles is nickel williamson also known as merlin uh from excalibur um, borman's excalibur yeah. that he did right after uh exorcist 2 and of course he was also in spawn and and a lot of other things he's a stage actor um you know along the likes of like so and Blatty had many, many things to say about John Borman and his movie, right? As we talked about in our episode on Exorcist 2. And Nicole Williamson is the link between them. Is that? Yep. <laughs> yeah, actually. There's several, there's several links, actually. But he likes, he liked Nicole Williamson enough that he, you know, ripped him out of the ether and, and put him in his reshoots. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite, favorite actor in this movie is Brad Dourif by far. I think he did the best job. Well, he's always great. 
He is, but I think he's especially good in this movie. Especially, I really, yeah. I really like him in this movie. Yeah, and there's there's some anecdotes about that as well because he wasn't supposed to have those moments. Really? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of monologues in this movie, and I stand a monologue. I do, but it has to be delivered well, right? Yeah. And Brad Dorif can deliver a fucking monologue. Oh hell yeah! I mean, he's amazing. He's an amazing actor. Everything he's ever done, I've yeah. always enjoyed him. I, I, he has a presence that is magnetic. You know, I mean, he has a really booming voice too. I mean, he's commanding. He yeah, super. I mean, it's a good cast. He's a huge know? range. Let's just say that. Yeah, I mean, from Chucky to this, I mean, yeah, Worm Tongue and Lord of the Rings, and yeah, he can do whatever he wants. I mean, he's, good. Yeah. he's excellent. Although at this point, he would be geriatric white. <laughs> so, <laughs> as we talked about, there was a lot of expectation uh, management issues with the second movie borman was as you may have heard last week's deep dive on exorcist 2 we uh we talked about borman actually came back and said he didn't deliver on those expectations because he didn't want to deliver a two-hour movie about how a woman was being tortured to death you know essentially right which is so many exorcism movies even today yeah right and so i have a feeling like a lot of people was like, okay, this is a return to form, things like that. And Blatty himself, who was the author of the original movie, uh, or actually the original book, which was turned into the movie. And then, mm-hmm. of course, tried to make a screenplay, which was kind of didn't go anywhere. And then wrote a book based on that screenplay, only to turn it back into a screenplay that he would direct himself, right? And so uh, people were thinking this is a return to form. But I also don't think that he he really delivered on those expectations, right? Because uh, I don't I don't know that we want a rehash of like an exorcism of a little girl or we need Linda Blair back or anything like that. But we really want the tone that was achieved with the first one. We want the contrast that was achieved with the first one. And we want to be shocked like the first one shocked us. And none of those things are really happening here. It achieves other things on its own, right? Yeah. And for his point, he didn't even want it called exorcism. You know, it was it it, it lives in that universe, but you know, it's 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 not exactly delivering on expectations for audiences for a film named Exorcist. And that, yes. And I I agree that it shouldn't be called The Exorcist. I, I think they shouldn't have that scene anyway. Like this novel is very, very good. It's very well written. And I mean, like you get to know the characters a little bit more than you do in the movie. And I like it a lot. I've read it a couple times. But it doesn't need to have that exorcism at the end of this movie, for real. And no. I feel like The Exorcist 2 didn't have an exorcism at all. You know what I mean? It kind of did at the end. I mean, kind of, but not really. I feel like I mean, everyone was getting exercised in the end. <laughs> well, we certainly were. The housekeeper was, Linda Blair was, the demon Linda Blair was, and then the father guy himself was getting exercised. <laughs> but the most important exorcism was, was the, the end of that movie when the credits roll and the demon is taken away from us. So <laughs> thank God. But I mean, but this movie is different, you know, and um, I don't know. I feel like if there's a movie called The Exorcist or has the word exorcism in it, like they should have an exorcism in the movie. I just, I wish this one didn't. I, I almost wish it had been almost more independent of this one, especially if you wanted to call it Legion and stand on its own, because it feels less like a worthy sequel and more like an aftershock of the first, as though everyone's still just picking up the pieces and cleaning up the mess caused by the first one. Yeah. And that's all it is. And oddly enough, there's actually more at stake in this movie than the first with a serial killer, like a double possession going on with like the quote unquote Pazuzu master or whatever. And and the serial killer possession of Karis. There's a lot of things going on. Some say convoluted. I say complex, right? But it doesn't feel like a worthy sequel because we're not being shocked. And there's not really a whole lot of contrast given to us between good and evil or 
we're innocent and guilty, right? We're just like kind of shown everything that's kind of happening. We don't have a lot of setup with Reagan and her mother, for instance. Right. We don't have a lot of setup with like the goodness of these these priests or fathers of the church or these victims. The, all the victims are almost faceless in this movie, right? Except for Father Dyer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Friar Dyer. <laughs> Friar Dyer. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and the, and that's the thing is that like you ha- when you're going into the Exorcist three, you really have to have seen the first Exorcist movie. Yes. I mean that's where that the difference between good and evil is, right? So it's like Karis and the Gemini Killer. But if you don't already know the character of Damien, Karis, yeah, then you can't. Like, the beating heart of this movie is another movie. Yes, thank you, my God, <laughs> that's exactly what I want to say. <laughs> Yeah, but we're given the aftermath of these crimes again and again with rarely seeing the demon or the serial killer or the victims, really. Uh, and and with the characters doing really nothing but kind of explaining what's happened and then just kind of spouting monologues. And I kind of – I mean, I like the movie for its, like, true crimey aspects, yeah. you know? It's kind and, of procedural in a way, yes. comparatively. And I, I, I also kind of wish it was a little bit more of that, you know? I really like watching – George C. Scott be a detective. You know what I mean? Like looking at each hand for each victim, you know, checking the finger and checking the palm and just like doing his job as a detective quietly, you know, and then going off and spouting monologues to someone else. But I really want more of that in this movie and less. Well, some people didn't appreciate that. Right. Which is stupid. Well, some reviewers mentioned that it seemed talky and literary, which I think is true. We've got the actual author and creator of the franchise in Blatty, who seems so reverent to his own material that individual voices of characters get lost in the dialogue that half the time seems to just exist, giving little exposition or storytelling to move anything forward, add intrigue or anything else. And everyone seems to have one voice, Blatty's voice. (laughs) And boy, does that voice seem super pleased with itself. (laughs) It's a little masturbatory. It is. It is. Okay. Uh, I, I will give you that. I mean, like... Like William Peter Blatty, I, I feel like. Have you ever read any of his books? Anyway, like no, but I just I just remember the the first scene. I'm being impressed with the big monologue. He's in this office. George C. Scott is in the office talking about the crimes and and everything he wants to do with all of these workers that are just like you can tell their eyes are just glazed over because he's talking <laughs> over them, right? In just the span of like 30 seconds to 60 seconds, it's like Blatty saying, like, look at all these references I know. Yeah. And it was like a bunch of literary references. Mm-hmm. And then there's like uh, philosophical references that I think fly over most people's heads. Yeah. I had just happened to be reading articles because I am the stupid nerd that I am about aesthetic philosophy. Right. <laughs> okay. And he mentions like this, this conversation's getting a little too aesthetic for my taste or whatever. And I'm like, if I had not read that article, that would have just flew right over my head. You know, like there's a lot of different things like that in these monologues that are just so fucking masturbatory and have no bearing on what's actually happening, not giving us any new information, not giving us any information about the character, not adding any intrigue. Like, come on, like give us something to chew on here. That's not just saying, Hey, look at all the cool words I know and all the references and all the books I've read. And maybe it's just like the fucking English major in me. You know what I mean? But I, I just love, I love them. I don't care if it has anything to say. If someone's talking in front of me for five minutes, I'll be fucking spellbound. You know, know. George has got like the mise en scene at this crime scene. Hold on. (laughs) Hold my beer. But yeah, so William Peter Blatty, to me, (laughs) does seem very, very fucking pleased with himself. Like, I, I feel like he thinks he's like the smartest person in the room. 
no matter where he is, right? And he probably talks like that. I haven't seen a lot of interviews with him, yeah. but I feel like he's really fucking full of it. I feel like it's a really fucking minor miracle or a major miracle that he and Friedkin could exist in the same room together. Exactly. I know there had to have been some sort of Just friction. Kind of jacking each other off <laughs> with a gun. I mean, like, so I, I feel like whenever he got the chance to direct this movie and he had made a movie like in the early eighties, like some piece of shit that I don't think I've never heard of the but ninth configuration, something like that. Yeah. Actually it's fairly well thought of, I think in some circles, I have never even heard of it. I, I thought that this was the only movie that he had ever directed until I pulled up IMDb. Yeah, I don't know. But I feel like when they were like, Oh, would you direct this? William Peter Blatty or whatever. We want you to direct it. I'm sure that his boner was so fucking huge. And he was like, of course I shall. He wasn't supposed to, but we'll get into that later. Oh, okay. So he was like <laughs> someone's last choice. Because I mean, like, would... He had chosen someone else because he probably is smart enough. And I don't think he's so arrogant. He's blind to all this. Mm. Like he has a fairly good head on his shoulders. And, and I think he knew that if he directed them to himself, he could get too reverent with his own fucking script, which he kind of did, you know, which, he, you know, you do versus, you know, I feel like people that have a lot of voices around them that they trust, like say Flanagan, Okay. You know, can get his gut checked a lot on those monologues and actually go somewhere story wise, you know, which he does. I, I mean, never like, get tired of a Flanagan monologue. No, I mean, in Midnight Mass was really just like seven episodes of it's like seven monologues, you know, mm. but they were good and and important, you know. And I think that some of these in here are too, especially the like the Doris monologues where he's talking about committing the crimes and like showing just how evil the Gemini killer is. But they're just really dancing like around the subject that they could have said so much faster you know, he's not telling a story. He's describing something at length that could have been described way, way, way shorter. I, I remember a quote. It was like, um, Mar- I think it was Mark Twain that said, I would have written you a shorter letter, but I didn't have the time. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things. Brevity takes creativity. It takes, you know, an ability to to tell a story in as few words as possible. And Blatty is just not doing that here. <laughs> Maybe I just like a flourish. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I, I appreciate, like, flowery language or whatever. I don't know. I, you ever I, heard, you know, like, hat on a hat? You know what I mean? <laughs> a flourish on a flourish? <laughs> There's a place to stop. There's a place to reel yourself in. We just like things that are super fancy and long. I don't know. I mean, I'm a, I'm a Shakespeare fan. So yeah, man. and it doesn't go so over the line that I didn't enjoy it most of the time but there was a time that it just took me aback it was like okay there's all these people are having monologues and they're all the same goddamn voice they're all using the same goddamn vocabulary it's true you know and i'm just like come on you've got to like at least create distinct voices here at least we get a monologue about him like what's it called when you take all the blood out of someone desanguinating something like that so i better know (laughs) <laughs> desanguinating yeah i think so demoisturizing yeah <laughs> demoisten <clears throat> okay um when you're completely you're desiccated when you're completely there's a very specific out. word about like bloodletting i just can't i, I don't know i don't i know. like the desanguination <laughs> it's not it's, it's not, not important to the conversation i just <laughs> all right blatty reel it in yeah i, I gotta help myself i mean like i kind of want to have monologues all the time now like i want to show up to work and have a prepared speech that's go around to give people that like, says go, nothing but i know the fury I, <laughs> I'm going to do it. I'm going to say a two-page monologue about how you need to clean the surface here. (laughs) It's about hand-washing, but it takes an hour. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. But uh, we we should go through some of the scenes, I guess. So there's like four different scenes here as we go through the movie that I'd like to kind of focus on rather than walking through the movie step by step. Yeah. Okay. 
First of all, I want to talk about that what the fuck dream sequence. <laughs> and I guess this is happening when George C. Scott's character um, is kind of dreaming that his friend has died. Right. Fire mm-hmm. Dyer. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Ned Flanders. <laughs> I'm going to call him anything but his actual name. But that whole scene, I feel like, could be almost cut, right? Like, it's complete with basketball players, Patrick Ewing, John Thompson, model Fabio <laughs> as playing an angel, ex-surgeon general C. Everett Coop, and an early appearance by Samuel L. Jackson, who was obviously there to ask Lieutenant Cameron to join the Avengers. <laughs> oh, my God. I wonder what his superhero name would be. <laughs> Monologue man. <laughs> Oh my god. Yeah, I don't I totally forgot about that dream sequence, you know, until we were watching it together. And I mean it's so 90s. Yeah. It looks I, like a like a early 90s music video. We had just talked about like the timelessness of the original Exorcist and how The Exorcist 2 is very of its time, right? And I feel like this movie could have been timeless if they didn't have this fucking dream sequence. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's a couple of things. But yeah, this is the it's out of nowhere. It doesn't really have any bearing. And it's just like, okay, someone really envisioned this and wanted to put it on film. (laughs) I wonder who it was. (laughs) (laughs) I do want to wonder if that was some sort of semblance of that was in the book. And I'm sure it was. Yeah, he had a dream. I mean, but I mean, obviously didn't name check. But um Yes, he does dream that his his friend had died. So. And you know, moving on, this this movie does have its spooks, right? And to me, the number one spookiness is when he's going to the church offices to talk with um, one of the fathers there. I guess there's like four different f- friars or fathers in this movie. Yeah, I feel like he was like the dean of, of a religious college or something like that. Something, yeah, 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 yeah. And so there's there's like noises, and he's talking about the exorcism, and like there's papers flying around, and there's creepy demon noises, and they both notice it, but Kinderman's <laughs> the only one that actually gets up and like like checks it out just leave, leaves the room no one talks about it and then goes around you see like this weird statue that this fucked up <laughs> looks like a fucked up demon like crossed with the joker yeah. you know and it's actually really fucking creepy and then it just like stops because like the, a girl is there and is, you know ends up being kind of a jump scare ish i guess and he goes back to the office is like nothing happened and they both just acknowledge that nothing just happened like he just left the office for five minutes was creeped out came back and didn't ask about it like that's not how conversations work it's almost like another dream sequence. Almost, yeah. Technically. I mean, like, you kind of get the sense that <clears throat> nothing in that situation is real, right? Like, it could easily be some sort of dream or daydream, right? Like, like George C. Scott sort of imagining it, you know? Does that make sense? It does. It makes sense, but it, it's not in the movie. It's, that's not what happens in the movie. It's happening in the movie. And yeah. he goes to investigate. And he comes back in and that guy's still, like, having a drink. Yeah. You know? He's like, and there was no, like, did you see anything or something like that? <laughs> yeah. There was, like... He's like do you like my Joker statue? We just put it in. <laughs> no, no one talks about it. <laughs> we just had the floors waxed in that demon sculpture. <laughs> and that lady just delivering some papers and she's like, bye and leaves. Like even she didn't see anything. So I mean, like, the lights fixed in here. Or like yeah. yeah. She's like, Oh, the lights are doing this shit again or whatever. I mean, like, so you must imagine it's like a common occurrence. That's why the guy didn't get up. He just kept drinking his drink. He's like, Oh, this happened five minutes ago. like i'm tired of looking (laughs) you're the detective the first few weeks i was assigned here was just constantly wandering around getting spooked (laughs) now i just sit at my desk and drink got to get that statue removed (laughs) (laughs) 
But it's really that's a scary scene. It, it is, it but is. It, 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 there's no meaning to it because there's no reaction to it. You know, like there's it doesn't build on anything or build up to anything else. No, I mean it's just it's just general spooky. It is a vignette. It is a good one. <laughs> yes, but it's it, you know it's it's one of the spookier moments of the movie. I mean atmosphere. But, you know, we do get to the hospital corridor, which is arguably the scariest scare in all of the genre. I mean, a lot of people would say that. And it consists of essentially, I don't want to spoil it for anyone that's it's listening to it that doesn't want to, I don't want to get too much into detail. We already told you it's the hospital corridor. There's a lot of scenes throughout the movie in the hospital corridor, yes, right? many. But this consists of two long shots of the hallway in the hospital split by the nurse actually checking on a sound, which turns out to be ice cracking in the patient's glass in a room. <laughs> yeah. She was like, <laughs> she should join the ever. Avengers. I mean, if she heard that ice from down well, the hall. We heard it too. It was a crack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She goes to the patient's room and that actually provides kind of like a jump scare because he jumps out of bed he's like what are you doing in here <laughs> as if he didn't expect a nurse to come check on him as a patient <laughs> I don't understand hospital. yeah so she leaves spooked you know and then it kind of continues that long shot so you thought that was but then it continues and you're like searching the frame for things people are going in and out like security people or police whoever they were different people that are working and you kind of follow her around and and it's like a really abnormally long shot it it, it kind of works somehow you know, because we know it's it, there's no other shot like that in the rest of the movie, but no. we're looking for something almost like it follows or something. Right. Mm. It's causing a lot of anxiety. And then finally, she walks into a room and it's just you're, you're still looking for things, but you don't have to because then the camera rack zooms. And like many people, you know, we lost our bowels. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the first time I watched this movie. First of all, I was terrified as a child of that crucifix eyes opening right yeah the very beginning right i mean it just scares the fucking shit out of me <laughs> scared uh, i mean like now i watch it and it's not quite as scary it's a little, <laughs> you said it was muppety it's a little muppety i don't know but, i just, just wanted to like come up and go on the stairs like that space ball saying <laughs> start dancing and shit but yeah i mean when i was a kid that scared the shit out of me and then this jump scare like literally i saw this movie when i was like 11 or 12 and it before I saw The Exorcist. No, I guess it was 13 and 14, maybe, because I saw it after I saw The First Exorcist. And it's like, scared the fucking bejesus out of me in ways that The Exorcist didn't when I was younger. Oh, yeah. Like, when I was younger, I felt this movie was far scarier than the original movie. Oh, sure. Well, the, the only jump scare, I think, in The Exorcist is like in the attic at the beginning, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Everything else is just like creeping dread, existential horror, things like that, right? Adult horror. You know, and then this one, this is actual, like, jump scare. And it seems like a film jump scare doesn't seem like a dolby shock from like my bloody valentine or something you know what i mean yeah bloody definitely like gave an excellent setup i think this is a masterful scene actually and it works so well but it's just there is no other long shot like that in the rest of the movie so it is very distinct yeah and i do feel very manipulated by it you know which is the whole point of it but it's if you were ever going to dissect a scene like as a layman this is a perfect one to do so because there are very very few cuts yes maybe like two cuts in the whole thing like i said it's halved, it's split by her checking on a patient, and then it goes back. And it's like you're doubling down on that anxiety that you just kind of released. And so there's moments that he's creating here, breaths and release and anxiety that are building up, not quite all the way released and then building up again to zoom in and just destroy your bowels. <laughs> and he, I mean, he he tries to do that in other places in this movie too. I think most namely mm-hmm. like during that um, confession scene. Where that old woman has like that just evil sounding voice, right? 
where you know she's she, she's like just minor minor things i have to confess like i murdered these people and shit or whatever and like there is lots of dread in that moment too because churches are scary and quiet yeah. you know and so oh, well, maybe not for everybody <laughs> i'm a gay Depends man. On I, the find, church. I find churches very scary <laughs> so, I mean, but yeah i think he, he creates moments like this in this movie but this is probably like the the best one for me it's so well made yeah and if you see this movie for no, no other reason this would be it to kind of go through and let yourself kind of sink into the movie a little bit sink into those needless monologues you know and just kind of settle in because it's almost that as the reviewer said that grayness to this movie that kind of allows for that sort of thing to happen to you and it's just one of the most successful dolby shock you know jump scares of all time it's like the creme de la creme is like the champagne of of jump scares really (laughs) Right. Everything else is like crystal. Because jump scares, I, I feel, is cheap most of the time. I feel like it's, it's a good, just a really cheap, not really useful thing. It's just really just trying to get you to that popcorn horror moment, right? But this one actually justifies its own existence. It certainly deserves a recognition, you know, that it gets. Yeah. And I, I know that jump scares are cheap, but I like them, you know? Like, I appreciate a good jump scare in a movie. It really it gets me into the moment. And it's super easy for me to get lost in film. Yeah. Like, it's, I just have no problem with that. And so jump scares are always effective for me. So, And what I don't want people to do is, like, fast forward to every hospital corridor scene they see and try and just watch it casually. It's part of the movie experience. You have to really settle into this movie for it to really affect you the way. You know, and, and we've already probably said way too much. But if you uh, have already seen this movie and... You know, or you see it afterwards. I'd love to see what people's first experience with that jump scare was. God, I wish people would create those reaction videos like you see on YouTube sometime. Oh, I've seen I've seen them. Like I I went specifically for this and watched a few uh, different people talk about it and and watched a few few people actually react to The Exorcist 3 for the first time. And every single fucking one of them, you know, except for maybe one person that was like checking on their drink or their food or their snack or something, (laughs) kind of missed it. Like, oh, what happened? You know? (laughs) Fuck you. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. I mean, like, he's right. Watch the entire movie, but it's a good scene. Yeah. Or at least, like, give yourself some 15 minutes of padding before it or something. I don't know. Yeah. But um, anyway, we get to that out of nowhere ending. <laughs> I know that they mentioned that character, right, Father Morning, at some point in the movie. But, it, I mean, it feels like he just showed up. Yeah. I feel like he was even maybe cut in somewhere else in the movie, but none of this was supposed to be here. Right. This is this yeah. is from studio meddling. Mm-hmm. Right. They they wanted some sort of climactic exorcism, special effects ridden, you know, powerhouse scene at the end. And Vladdy did not want that and did not write the movie for it. And so it does seem very out of place and rightly so. Right. But he did it. He was a good sport. You know, it was a as he says, it was a Mexican standoff. Wow. Don't say Mexican, just say standoff. <laughs> Don't say Mexican, just say standoff. <laughs> But on that climactic exorcism scene, Blatty later said, it's all right, but it's utterly unnecessary and it changes the character of the piece. Although at the time, Blatty told the press that he was happy to reshoot the film's ending and have the story climax with a frenzy of special effects. Apparently, the compromise was forced on Blatty against his wishes. And he said, the original story that I sold Morgan Creek was and that I shot ended with Kinderman blowing away patient X. There was no exorcism. But it was a Mexican standoff. There it is. Between me and the studio, I was entitled to one preview. And then they could go and do basically whatever they wanted with the picture. They gave me a preview, but it was the lowest end preview audience I have ever seen in my life. They dragged in zombies from Haiti to watch this movie. (laughs) It was unbelievable. But I decided better I should do it than anyone else. I foolishly thought I can do a good exorcism. I'll turn this pig's ear into, into a silk purse. 
So I did it. <laughs> Brad Dourif later recalled, we all felt really bad about it, but Blatty tried to do his best under very difficult circumstances. And I remember George C. Scott saying that the folks would only be satisfied if Madonna came out and sang a song at the end. <laughs> And Brad Dourif feels that the original version was a hell of a lot purer, and he liked it a lot more. And as it stands now, it's a mediocre film. There are parts that have no right to be there. And as much as I appreciate Nicole Williamson, Merlin himself, the character of Father Morning, who kicks off the final exorcism, it seems like he's crammed into the film with very little context and seemed really, really fucking jarring to me. It is kind of jarring. He just shows up out of nowhere in the nick of time. Yeah. Like Deus Ex Machina, which does not fit the theme of this movie. I mean, we see him for a minute, like in his room or dorm or whatever, and he's like getting ready for the exorcism. And then he's walking down the hallway of the hospital and then he's performing the exorcism. I'm like, who's this? Yeah, (laughs) it didn't make any sense. They need to do more pickups, reshoots or something to introduce his character early in the film, weave him in somehow. And I mean, I feel like he's mentioned somewhere else in The Exorcist, either the, the, the original or somewhere, you know, we hear Father Morning. And clearly, Damien Karras had friends all over the Catholic Church or whatever, because everyone's coming to like, to his aid constantly. I feel like the pickups would have been super easy, like if you had replaced the Dean or something with Father Morning. Yes. You know, and had Father Morning have a little bit more to say there when he came back, that would also tie that in better. Like, you know, I've seen the things you've seen. Point me in the right direction and call me when you need me. You know, that would have been more interesting, you know, to me. And it would have tied the whole fucking thing together in that scene. <laughs> well, and or even have the Dean do it. And that would have a five minute fucking pickup shot. Like have the Dean put his drink down and be like, I am sick and tired of the lights changing. I'm going to go exercise this demon. I am sick and tired of these motherfucking demons <laughs> in and my motherfucking office. <laughs> Can I please have a lamp that stays on? They already had Samuel L. Jackson in the movie. That's what right. made him. He could have said he could have done the exorcism. <laughs> it could have been a Samuel L. Jackson Fabio sandwich of an exorcism. Come on. God, just all the puzzle pieces are there. Just not put together right. And quite frankly, if Madonna came out and sang a song at the end of the movie, I would have been very happy. <laughs> Sooner or later you're gonna be dead. I don't know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh. Do you have anything else to say about this movie? Because I have some fun facts for you. I love the fun facts. Lay those on me. All right. Some of these aren't fun. <laughs> some of these are depressing. <laughs> That's so misleading. <laughs> I have some fun facts. Some of them aren't fun. Okay. I need to rebrand fun facts as just facts. <laughs> facts are facts. Here's some, are some facts I'm just going to read at you. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so Morgan Creek and Coralco both wanted to make the film. And William Peter Blatty decided upon Morgan Creek after Coralco suggested the idea of a grown-up Reagan McNeil having birth to possessed twins <laughs> no that's the movie i want to see and they ended up in the shining <laughs> it all comes together oh my god so blatty actually offered directorial responsibilities to john carpenter oh who liked his script however carpenter backed out eventually when it became clear that blatty wanted to direct the movie himself and also because of creative differences regarding the ending of the movie ironically <laughs> I don't see John Carpenter making this movie. His version of this is Prince of Darkness. Yeah, I was going to say, I think we've already seen it. <laughs> and even though, I mean, that movie is nothing like The Exorcist 3, but still. It had his weird cameos, too, now that I think about it. I love Prince of Darkness. What was the weird cameo in that? Alice Cooper? I, think, I can't remember. It was Alice Cooper, I'm pretty sure. But yeah, no. I, I mean, a homeless like, guy. <laughs> 
I mean, I, the ending of the the original ending of him just blowing away Damien, right, is kind of bleak, right? It's it's yeah. all misty, you know. Yeah. So, in an interview on the bonus features of the collector's edition, Brad Dourif opens up saying the reason why Jason Miller, Father Karras, was unavailable to reprise his role originally because he was a severe alcoholic and had developed quote-unquote wet brain oh god what's that and this meant that he couldn't memorize the two long monologues that the gemini killer has and so he says that led him to start start sharing the role with uh, miller in the theatrical cut so he would recite the monologues while miller could handle the shorter lines however an audio commentary with william peter blatty makes no mention of this simply saying miller was unavailable Right. So really, this is because Brad Dourif got those monologues because he couldn't do it. Oh, well, thank God, though. I so mean, they intercut it to make it seem like he was forming back and forth from one another. Uh-huh. So that's basically how Brad Dourif got the gig. That's super neat. I mean, I, I like that fact. And I, I'm glad that it, I'm, I'm not glad that he was an alcoholic, but I'm glad that Brad Dourif got to do it because I, I feel like that's some of the best parts of this movie to me. Is anytime that Brad Dorf is on screen. Also, is that what I have to look forward to? Do I have to start saying my monologues now before I develop wet brain? <laughs> You're not an alcoholic. I'm slowly getting there. Come on, I'm trying. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Work <just> harder. <laughs> so finally, the execution style ending that William Peter Blatty pitched to the studio, which was in the shooting script and actually filmed, differs radically from the ending both of the novel and the first screenplay adaption developed from the novel. The novel ends with Gemini Killer summoning Kinderman to his cell for a final speech and then willingly dropping dead after his cruel and hated father, a Christian evangelist, dies of a natural death from a heart attack. So as his motive for killing was always to shame his father, the Gemini's reason for remaining on Earth no longer existed, and he kills Karis in order to leave his host body. Mm-hmm. So in Blatty's original screenplay adaption, the ending is similar to the novel, except that the Gemini's death is not self-induced, but forced supernaturally and suddenly by the death of his father. In both novel and the early screenplay, the Gemini's motives for his murders are also given for the context via a long series of flashbacks, which portray his and his brother's childhoods and their relationship with their alcoholic, abusive father. I'm telling you, it's a really good novel. Like, people should read it. It's it's, it's a better yeah. novel than The Exorcist. That would be difficult to do film-wise. Yes. You'd have to really, like, make it known to the main character, like, witnessing that to understand what's happening so the audience can be on board with it. You know, yeah. it's very difficult to edit and film that way. And that must have been why the studio was like, we need something a little bit more dramatic. We need more of an exclamation point on this. And neither was the right way, I think. So somewhere maybe is a perfect version of this, but according to that studio, all of it's gone. All of those cuts are gone. They tried to find it and they couldn't find it. Apparently there are some, like really poor quality. Yeah, but they're all video quality, yeah. you know, and so there's still not the, like the, the deleted scenes and things like that. Yeah, I mean. So a lot of it's still not there and never will be, I don't think, unless they find it, you know, in some basement somewhere. People keep talking about a director's cut and and um, <clears throat> I know some video company had said they, they are making one and I was like, well, how? Like it doesn't exist. So, I mean, we'll probably yeah. never get it. But then they, they announced, that the studio announced that they were on board with it, right? Like uh, Morgan Creek wanted to find it and they said they, they could find it and they were going through all of their archives. But they, at the end of the day, if you a couple of years later, they were like, we can't find it. So lost forever. I think like some of the dailies came back and they were all video, you know, but so maybe some of that is, is in those cuts on the internet, but that's it's it. okay. I mean, because as we're going to get into with some questions, I don't, I, I don't think that we need a different version of this movie. I think it's fine the way it is. Sure. You know I mean, 
Well, yeah. We're not going to ask if it's a horror movie because it is. Yep. But were you scared? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. There was like some scary moments in this movie for sure. And this is the first time you've seen this one, right? Yeah. Yeah. Man, like I said earlier, when I was a kid, this movie scared the fucking shit out it's of me. It's scary in some places. Every time it's I watch it, boring in some places, but it's scary as fucking others. And I, I wonder if that bolsters it. You know, like the like the grayness, that beigeness, and a lot of this kind of is the contrast of the movie, right? Oh yeah. So those oh. moments of of creepiness are, you know, it's almost like the dullness, the almost boring quality of normal life compared with horror, right? And so that's the contrast in this movie. If there is any to be had. I, that's good. That's something I feel like Blatty does well. I think that I think The Exorcist is like that, you know? Except this one is a little bit more dull. Boring with moments of glory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like he lulls you into a dull sense of monologue and then bam. <laughs> Jump scare. <laughs> and it works, you know? Yeah. It's it's a really scary movie. And I like I'm still scared to this day when I watch it. And I'm a grown ass man. So sure. Uh, out of five stars, what would you rate The Exorcist 3? I rate it a three because to me it is an evenly mixed bag. Okay. Slightly to the positive. Right. Okay. So it's uh, I enjoy it all the way through kind of unevenly. <laughs> Obviously, there's a lot of mo- those moments of grayness, of beigeness, and then it's got moments of greatness intermixed, right? So it's a very, very mixed bag. It's certainly better than the second one, which was a dumpster fire, or at least the trash heap that wasn't quite on fire yet because we rated it two stars. <laughs> you know, but it's, it's certainly not a, like a classic like film with a capital F like the first one was, you know what I mean? So I, I feel like this is worthy watching, but it's not. it doesn't reach the heights of the first one. Nor is it really trying to. No, I think it's trying to be a separate movie. I gave it four stars. I think it's I think it's good. I think it's well made. I think it's enjoyable. I mean, and and I appreciate things like monologues or whatever. I think it's a very well written I think it's a very well written, witty movie, you know? <laughs> Wet brain? I know. <laughs> oh my god. I can't even it's not even a monologue. I can't well say written. two sentences. <laughs> well written. <laughs> It's, I mean, it's super witty. I mean, and I think we have Blatty to thank for that. Thankfully, Blatty's so full of himself that he becomes witty. Yeah. So there's that. It's a good movie. You know, I fully recommend that people But are we laughing this. with him or at him? A little of both. <laughs> I mean, but and that's, that's healthy. And that's fine. And that's a three star. A balance. Although, I mean, it's better than a three star for me, so. All right, finally. And I don't even know if I have an answer to this fucking question. Who's the hottest guy in The Exorcist 3? Fabio, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> See Everett Coop? No. I don't know. I kind of like Nicole Williamson or whatever in his blonde wig. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Probably no one. Literally no one. It's a very geriatric movie. It really is. Or everyone. It's Legion. I mean, <laughs> oh, Brad Dorif, I guess. The old people are Legion in this movie. I don't normally think that Brad Dorif is very attractive, but for some reason, when he's all demonic and scary and murdery, I'm like, Hey, Daddy. 
I do feel like there's actually a conversation to be had there. Like we could have deep dove in a little bit further as far as like geriatric horror, adult horror, losing one's mind to dementia and things like that and being open to other things, which is the whole kind of premise of this movie, right? He's using these old people's bodies, you know, to possess and, and do as he will, you know, do horrible, horrible things. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And there's a lot of there's a lot of horror there, um, you know, that we're not going to talk about because that's it. That's the end of this episode. <laughs> well, you did just then. We'll put so. a pin on it. <laughs> when we come back <laughs> to this conversation. <laughs> we did we answer the question? <laughs> Fabio. Well, it's it's fine. Fabio. I mean, like, no one really. It's fine. Good Lord. <laughs> Well, I think that just about wraps up our conversation on The Exorcist 3. We want to know what you think about this movie, like always. And you can reach out to us on social media at The Film Flamers on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com. Or, as usual, you can call our hotline at 972-666-7733. We're going to fry your dire I wish I could do a Fabio voice I would do it right now but I can't let's fry your dire <laughs> let's fry your dire <laughs> I had dreams of being fucked down a long flight of steps <laughs> I don't know <laughs> trying too hard I'm like Vladdy <laughs> I would add something to that but it's gonna be way too long so I'm just gonna cut myself off now that about wraps up this month of uh, deep dives but you can head on over to Patreon because we're going to be deep diving into well maybe shallow diving (laughs) into two of the Exorcist prequels which is a very very singular and unique opportunity because these are two separate movies released one year apart based on the same story two different directors I don't know that it's ever happened before or since so stay tuned I think everyone learned their lesson. <laughs> and everyone learned their lesson. <laughs> it will never happen again. But it is a very unique opportunity. And I'm, I'm kind of chopping at the bit to have that discussion. It is. And I haven't seen these movies in a while, so I am looking forward to a rewatch. Maybe I will love them a la Prometheus. So I really doubt that. I seriously doubt it, too. Guys, like we mentioned earlier in the month, we have a lot of brand new merch. We have our Sigourney fucking Weaver t-shirt, and now we have a Cassie t-shirt. We do. We have a Cassie t-shirt. We're all sorry about this t-shirt, Cassie. And we also have cow eyes, if you're familiar with that in-joke. And uh, a number of other things with the new logo and some other things. So just check out our store because we have updated the shit out of it. So enjoy. You want these things on hoodies, t-shirts, fucking pillows and phone cases sometimes. Whatever. If you have an idea for merch that you'd like to see, let us know. I could probably just do it. That's right. And you can find all that on our website at filmflamers.com. Just click on the visit our store button. That's right. All right, Chris. I think it's time to go off and write my monologue for work tomorrow. But I'll do that after we have some sweet dreams. I wish this movie were more quotable. That's the thing, is that like the first two Exorcist movies are very quotable, and this one is not. Call me with my dream name. (laughs) (laughs) No, that song is stuck in my head.